Hi, I'm Emma Bartlett, a partner at CM Murray LLP in London, and I'm talking today to Theresa Johnson, who is corporate and finance partner at Arnold and Porter in San Francisco. Morning. Hi. It's so nice to so nice to be with you. Indeed, I'm I'm thrilled to sort of do our uh, across the pond comparison of, of what we're seeing in board diversity in in the UK and uh, and here in the in the US and particularly California. Ah, oh, thank you. Well, I, I know in your corporate governance work that you have particular focus on board diversity. So I'm really pleased to have the opportunity to discuss this with you today in what I hope is the first of our mini podcast series on how board diversity has changed. I consider it's come a long way, but there's plenty more to do. There's very little regulation in the UK in this regard. Reliance has been placed mainly on peer pressure, naming and shaming and pressure from investors and stakeholders to bring about change. But I know that California labor initiatives are frequently looked at by the UK. Um, they are seen as progressive. And uh, there's a, a recent example, not related to board diversity, but the UK government has been looking at what California has done in terms of prohibiting non-compete restrictions. So now, once again, the UK is looking at how California is dealing with board diversity from a quota perspective. So, Theresa, can you explain what the requirements are in California at the moment? Sure, sure. I'm delighted to, and I'm 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 thrilled that uh, that California is being looked at as a as a bellwether by uh, by the UK and and by others. It's it's interesting because I think in the in the broader scheme of uh, board diversity, um, the Europe, some of many of the European countries have been ahead of us in terms of, of uh, establishing quotas. I think Norway did the first in, back in the, the early 2000s and several of the continental European countries have, have come along as well. Um, and so I, California is kind of the, the, has been the first in the US to move in this direction. Um, so there are two, two laws on the books in California. Um, one was adopted in 2018, and it's called SB 826, and it requires a minimum number of women on boards of California corporations, meaning specifically um, publicly traded corporations that have their principal executive offices in California. Uh, and the requirement was that those uh, companies had to have one woman on their board by the end of 2019, and then by the end of 2021, so by the end of this year, for boards with six or more uh, seats, they have to have three women on the board. And for boards with you know, five or, or uh, fewer seats, they have to have at least two. So when the law was passed, it was, it was very controversial. There was a lot of discussion about whether it was going to be, uh, whether it was unconstitutional, um, subject to challenge for uh, under something called the Internal Affairs Doctrine, which basically says that as a state to state matter that one state can't legislate requirements for companies that are incorporated under the laws of a different state. And since probably most publicly traded corporations in the US are incorporated in Delaware, that would essentially mean that the California law applying to publicly traded corporations you know, would have fairly limited effect. So a lot of debate about whether it was a good idea, um, uh, whether it was, um, you know, a, a policy debates about whether it would require companies to take on inexperienced directors because they'd be forced to, to suddenly expand their boards and that the impetus should really come from uh, 
from from the investment community and from business, not from not from the government. Um, and interestingly, the, the the governor of California signed it into law on the very last day that he could, from a legal standpoint, after it was passed by the legislature. And one of the things that he mentioned in the signing statement, um, kind of, there was an oblique reference to the fact that at the time. Uh, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh was under consideration by the Judiciary Committee, and as we all know, there was quite a bit of controversy about the about his his uh, uh, his background and the testimony about his history. And so, I think that sort of informed the decision. And so, on on gender diversity, that's the current state of the law in California. It's um, it's very ambitious, I think, compared with the UK. We've gone down the road of exactly what commentators in the US were seeking in terms of getting investors and um, the community really to put pressure on uh, companies, public listed companies to do the right thing. And it started back in 2011 with the Lord Davies report, which was a government backed report on intergender diversity on boards. And it was called Women on Boards in 2011 which set voluntary target of 25% women on boards of the FTSE 100 companies by 2015. So four years to achieve that. And then after, after that target um, was not quite hit, but after that, then there followed five years worth of reports undertaken by the Hampton Alexander Review. Again, another government backed report looking at progress made against targets and they um, set a, a slightly more ambitious target of um, one third uh, representation of women on the FTSE 350 companies and in senior leadership roles by 2020. So that was trying to get the, uh, the pipeline of women um, ready to take up those board positions in the future. And the reports have been really enlightening and, and we can talk about those later. But then that's focused on gender. We had the Sir John Parker review in 2017, which looks at ethnic minority representation on boards and public companies. And it set um, voluntary targets again in three areas to increase ethnic diversity on UK boards by proposing in the FTSE 100, at least one director of an ethnic minority company by 2021 and for the FTSE 250 boards by 2024. And again, to um, no particular targets here, but encouraging them to develop a pipeline of candidates and plan for succession through mentoring and sponsorship. We've obviously got the gender pay reporting obligation in the UK, which is mandatory for large employers. Um, so that doesn't focus on boards, but what it does focus um, minds of large companies on is the fact that there isn't a, re a high representation generally of women um, in the top echelons of a company or women holding managerial positions and because of that it creates uh, gender disparity in pay. Uh, for the first time in January 2019 we had in the corporate governance code a requirement for boards to report on diversity um, as part of their annual reporting and I think that really did focus uh, the board minds on gender diversity as, as well as diversity generally. So, so that's really where, where we are on um, what the government has been doing to push the, the agenda, really, for um, championing and diversity and inclusion on boards. Well, I think in the, um, uh, again, coming back to California, you mentioned the, um, 
the reports on focusing and, and the requirements to focus on having um, minority representation on boards. Um, you know, we've, we've kind of followed a similar path. And two years after the, the gender diversity law last year in 2020, California legislature adopted um, uh, a, a new law about essentially requiring a minimum number of representations of, of people from underrepresented communities. And that was um, essentially defined as racial minorities, uh, African-American, uh, Hispanic, um, uh, Asian-American, uh, and also then members of the LGBTQ plus community. And the new law requires that there be at least one uh, member of an underrepresented community on each board by the end of 2021. So this year, and then by the end of 2022, you have to have for boards of five to eight people, there must be at least two uh, members of underrepresented communities. And then for boards of nine or more, you have to have at least three. And interestingly, by contrast to the gender diversity law, and I think this perhaps speaks to the evolution of public thinking and the fact that, that these issues have become so much in the forefront, not only in terms of uh, government's response, but also business response, because the institutional investors have really jumped on the bandwagon for this. There was much less controversy about it, um, and it passed with, with relatively with, with relative ease. Um, and uh, uh, it, it raises some interesting issues. I don't know if you've bumped into this yet in the UK, but it raises some interesting issues about self-identification because the people who count towards this need to self-identify as, as being members of minority communities or being members of the LGBTQ plus community. And um, uh, particularly for folks in the LGBTQ plus community, it can raise some interesting issues because many companies are very um, hesitant about asking people to self-identify, asking the board members or candidates to self-identify. Um, and so it's raising some, some interesting issues uh, around that. And you know, maybe we'll, we'll talk in, in a minute or two about NASDAQ rule, but similarly on the national level, um, one of our biggest uh, stock exchanges is focusing on a similar, a similar rule to the, to the California, that kind of combines the two California rules and that is currently pending approval by the SEC. Yeah, um, I think that's, that's a really difficult situation because there is no requirement for individuals in their working environment to disclose any of their personal data. So trying to get somebody to disclose um, for it to be reported as part of the overall statistics all requires voluntary cooperation from the individuals. And, um, you know, it's not always easy, but it's potentially easier to understand how people might identify from a gender perspective, but not so from LGBTQ+. And so it, it is ambitious from the California government to, to say, right, this is the next step. And uh, I, I agree, I think it's the right step to take, but it does require everybody to get on board, doesn't it? In yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's been interesting, too, to see in California, and I, I'm interested to, to see if you think this is the case in, in, um, in, London, in the, uh, Britain as well, that notwithstanding that there are a lot of questions around whether, as a legal matter, if, you, know, if, if, if you went through a law school exam and fully briefed a, a case about these laws, whether they would stand up to scrutiny, um, that as a general matter, what's happened is companies subject to the laws have, have pretty much decided to simply comply with them. 
And I think that's a combination of the heightened public awareness of these issues and and the fact that nobody wants to be sort of called out as the one who you know is is opposed to diversity. And so um, the 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 there's been a significant amount of progress in terms of of women on public boards in the, the boards the companies that are subject to the California law. I think in in 2018. Uh, the 180 of the 650 public companies that were subject to the California law had all male boards. Um, by the end of 2020, that number was down to 15. So, you know, significant change in that in that respect. You know, vol- essentially, you know, uh, voluntary compliance or just not wanting to challenge the law. Um, there have been a couple of lawsuits filed to challenge the constitutionality of this law, um, but interestingly. No, there have been no challenges by the companies subject to them um, or by uh, significant investors. The, the challenges were filed by uh, essentially conservative uh, political groups or conservative legal groups that are, are challenging the, the constitutionality. Uh, and those are, in fact, interestingly, one of the claims was filed on behalf of a shareholder of a company, which at the time that the suit was filed, didn't have any women on its board. And he claimed that he was being forced to cast his, his vote you know, in, in favor of a, of a candidate that, that he wasn't necessarily supportive of. And um, interestingly, the company, you know, sort of outside of him, the company didn't support this litigation and in fact voluntarily complied and you know, brought a woman onto its board before the end of 2019. So it's, it's, I, I think the legal challenges are, are turning out to be not that big of a deal because even if the law is ultimately overturned by this point, we will have accomplished a, a significant amount of change. So I'm interested to know, are, are you seeing, um, how are you seeing pushback against, against these kinds of you know, requirements or understandings? Yeah, I mean, it seems that you have achieved in two years what, it, what has taken the UK 10 years to achieve. We had um, quite a significant amount of pushback and that was shown up in the um, Hampton Alexandra reviews where they looked at, at the top 10 excuses for not having women on boards. And um, when I was reading this, it, it, threw, uh, it, it felt like comments from the Victorian era. So for example, they would say, um, all the good women have been snapped up or my other colleagues wouldn't want a woman on the board or I don't think women fit comfortably in the boardroom. Um, Other comments such as, we have one woman already on the board, so we're done, it's someone else's turn. And all of these were quite worrying. Um, This was in 2018. And at that point, there was still a a, a reasonable proportion of the FTSE 350 companies which had all male boards still. Um, I really do think that the naming and shaming because the Hampton Alexander Review picked it up and they did their annual report and then it gets picked up in the UK press. And so these comments are then um, put in the public domain and they have shifted and brought about change. Um, but it doesn't seem that moving on a voluntary basis has been as quick as the quota basis in, in the US and sorry in California in particular because you've moved not just gender specific um, diversity, but you're moving um, in the other areas of protected characteristics as well. Yes, yes, that's true. And I, I'm told by folks um, that I know in the board who do board search, um, you know, both both in terms of a, kind of the large search firms that that do it on on the grand scale for the 
the Fortune 100 companies and, and for um, you know, a, a huge number of fantastic groups that in the US, like How Women Lead, that are focused on um, bringing women, to, you know, getting women to be board ready. And, and there are similar groups focused on African-Americans and, and uh, Latinos and, and now LGBTQ folks and so forth. But they're all seeing this enormous demand from companies for directors who fit into these, who qualify as diverse candidates. Women, um, minorities, in particular African-Americans are you know, sort of the number one ask, which is amazing. Um, and I think that that shows a, a significant amount of progress. And, and it's interesting what you say about naming and shaming, because um, I think it's, it's really all about whether the public is paying attention to it or not. I mean, they, we, we had in California, there was a law in the books back in 2003 about the need for more diversity on boards and, and directing the Secretary of State to, to set up a, a database of a list of distinguished uh, women uh, and minority candidates for boards. And um, uh, essentially, as far as I am aware, I'm not, a, I'm not familiar with any company that ever used that database to, to find a board candidate, nor have I ever seen it. So I'm not even sure that it honestly exists, but, but that notion of, of, um, of sort of trying to sort of exhort uh, compliance didn't work. And similarly, the SEC a few years ago established requirements in, in um, the uh, uh, public reporting uh, for publicly traded companies to have to disclose the, to essentially disclose their, and, and explain diversity characteristics of their board and how, how, the, how they've, and to what extent they've taken into account diversity in, in the board without specificity around any particular requirements and, um, and, and that didn't really lead to too much, too much change. I think in the sense that, that boards just didn't, boards that were very woke and focused a lot on that were, you know, really jumped into it and, but others didn't and, and talked in a, in a broader sense about diversity. And it really has only come, I think in the last few years that we've seen this enormous pressure on trying to have more, to, to really kind of put pressure on companies to have more diversity on their boards. Yeah, I think in the UK, we need to move now into understand how this will translate into the private sector, because at the mm. moment, focus has been on the public sector. And there are new challenges that need to be undertaken in the public sector. But how do we move this into the private sector is, is the next big challenge. Just a summarize where we've got to in the UK with, with progress. Uh, for the first time, according to the latest Hampton Alexander Review, we now have no all-male boards in the FTSE 100, which is great. And there is now a year-on-year -year decline in the one-and-done mantra as well. Um, there appears to be a strong increase in women on executive committees, i.e. setting out that pipeline um, of uh, recruiters to pull, pull from. Um, and there's 20% more women on boards in the last four years, but it, it's still obviously a continuing challenge. Almost a third of the FTSE 100 companies haven't met the 33% target. So um, there seems to be a few serious laggards in that respect. But most positive thing that's come through from this is the position being taken by investors and investor groups, such as the Investor Association in the UK, because they are um, taking steps to try and embed the progress of recent years using their voting rights as investors to 
push companies to achieve these voluntary targets and, and make progression. So I, th I think that's that's been really helpful, but it sounds like there's so much more that needs to be done and we could look to California certainly, um, particularly to move the agenda along significantly out of the gender discussion. Well, it's it's definitely a, a broader issue, I think, and and and, and um, focuses more on you know whether um, the 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 need to have a diversity of, of views on on boards. And it's interesting. I've 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 heard one of the folks who really follows diversity has talked to me about the fact that that no one person is diverse in a way that you know by talking about someone is diverse, you're sort of you know, positioning them as being other, you know, the, their the diversity is, is viewed in terms of having a multiplicity of perspectives. And so historically, we've had mostly the perspective of the straight white man on, on our corporate boards. And so by, by bringing in other perspectives, we achieve diversity. But I, I thought it was an interesting perspective to sort of identify that, you know, no person is diverse because that suggests that you're like, you know, you're either the main, main category or the other. But the point that I was going to note also on um, on the, the diversity issue and, and the, the sort of the impact of it was there was a recent study uh, done that looked at um, share prices when for companies that added uh, women on their boards. And um, uh, there was a disturbing correlation between uh, the addition of women to boards and then a drop in the share price. And um, what was even more concerning about that to me was that the the, the metrics, the performance, um, the uh, uh, the revenues, the profitability of those companies, all stayed strong and in many cases improved after the women were added to the boards. So the drop in share price was not indicative of a drop in the financial performance of the company. It was indicative of the market perceiving that by having added women to the board, that somehow that suggested that the company was taking its eye off the ball in terms of the economics and performing metrics and and was was you know thus less valuable. So so I, I think there's still a lot of you know perception and and um, you know internalization to be done around this that it isn't just that, that, that diversity really does, and all this, there are quite a few studies that support this, but the, the diversity of perspectives does really end up being good for the, the company and the company shareholders, you know, not, not only just because it's the right thing to do. That, that's extraordinary, but I guess unsurprising. But did you, would you say that institutional investors help correct that perception at all? I, I think they do. I mean, they've certainly voted with their feet, um, similar to, to what you're saying in, in, in the UK, in the US, the largest institutional investors, um, they're sort of the big three, there's uh, BlackRock, Vanguard and State Street. They have all come out very strongly in the last couple of years, uh, pushing for diversity on boards, pushing for a variety of you know, ESG, the Environmental Social Society and Governance movement has has been taken up in um, uh, in force by by the the institutional investors and so they have have um, you know with, with respect to board diversity specifically for example they've indicated that they won't vote in favor of they won't they will not vote against the heads of nomination and governance committees if the, the board is not sufficiently diverse uh, they certainly also have a, a pipeline of direct communication with, with the companies that they invest in because they 
carry such a big stick um, that they they can use their informal lobbying pipelines or, or you know, uh, communication paths to be able to in- influence companies to, to move in that direction. So we're seeing a tremendous amount of that. Um, Goldman Sachs has indicated that they will not take a company public unless it has sufficient diversity on its board, including at least two uh, people who are members of underrepresented communities, and at least one of them has to be a woman. So we're seeing a lot more focus by the, you know, the, the power players in the market on these issues, which is fantastic. Yeah, that is fantastic. Well, I hope um, as a result of these discussions, we can learn a little bit more about how diversity is actually being achieved. There was one thing I just wanted to pick up on before we finish for today's podcast. Um, and that was on where you mentioned that uh, the share price um, seemed to drop on companies where a woman had been hired onto the board. And if, if in any way that was seen as people not selecting on, based on merit, but selecting because they had to, and that's obviously one of the big debates over quota versus aspirational targets. In, in the UK, positive discrimination is generally unlawful. So if you were to have be faced with two candidates and the only difference between them is their gender and you were to choose the woman over the man in that situation as long as in all other respects they they are exactly the same and um, it's a a straight choice but you're doing it in order to assist with your diversity then that's okay that's not positive discrimination but if you were to be faced with two candidates one man one woman um, and the man was a clear head and shoulders above the woman in terms of experience and what they can bring to the board then to choose the woman over the man then that that would be unlawful but I think what both of us have been talking about today is ensuring that um, any board doesn't choose their directors from a very small pool and that mm-hmm. they, they cast their net wide in terms of ensuring that they, they do have the best um, potential directors to choose from rather than just going through the same um, narrow pond, as it were, to, to select from. Well, it's, uh, it's interesting. I'll, I'll offer one final thought on that, which is that um, one of the things that is, is a factor in selecting board members is that you know, historically the archetypal board member is someone who is a CEO of another company. That's, that's kind of, or maybe a CFO. Like those are the, those are the, the main kind of criteria. Um, and, and, and there's good reasons for that. That makes lots of sense. But the, 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 the issue is that when you're looking to diversify your company, be, you know, the, the, there aren't as many women who are CEOs um, or CFOs. There aren't as many members of uh, underrepresented communities who are CEOs or CFOs. And so what's going on now is that the, the board search firms and, and, um, and companies that are searching for new board members are broadening their thinking. So about you know, what kind of experience, what kind of, um, uh, you know, what, what, what you know, job you have to have had in order to, to be a candidate for a board. And so it'd be interesting to see how, in, if this in the UK with respect to the discrimination that you were describing, how a, how a court would have to grapple with that because, you know, you, how do you compare a, a, a straight white man CEO to a, an African, uh, African uh, British woman who's been the chief uh, marketing officer, you know, well, I mean, the debate about whether they're the same quality board candidate is something that's really uh, um, 
would be an interesting issue to uh, to see how that would be examined. Well, thank you very much. I think we've got much more to talk about, and um, I think we've agreed in our next podcast we're going to do almost a deep dive on how diversity is being achieved, and then uh, a third pod podcast after that looking at what next for board diversity and how and what changes are being promoted and recommending and recommended and how greater change is going to be brought about in the future. I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing our, uh, our discussions.